Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 60. Did you know the Python Software Foundation is hiring? With the recent support of three visionary sponsors, the PSF has been able to open positions for a developer in residence and a Python packaging project manager. Real Python now has a monthly Python news article. Frequent guest of the show, David Amos, compiles and summarizes the biggest Python news from the past month. This week on the show, David's back, and he's brought another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. We discuss David's news article from the past month, and we also discuss previous guest John Fincher's new step-by-step tutorial about creating a platform game with the Arcade framework. We cover other articles and projects from the Python community, including how to use iPy widgets to make your Jupyter Notebooks interactive, the hidden performance overhead of Python C extensions, adding else to for loops, film simulations from scratch using Python, a gradual programming language named Hetty, and a Python ray tracer. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean's app platform. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, David, welcome back. Hey, Chris, thanks. It's fun to be back making one of these episodes again. (laughs) Yeah. So what do you got first? First one I've got is from Matt Wright, who I think we've featured at least once, maybe a couple times before. It's called How to Use iPy Widgets to Make Your Jupyter Notebook Interactive. So this is a cool little, not so much a tutorial as it is just kind of, a, I guess, a, a showcase of different features, but it kind of tackles a problem where, let's say you're using a Jupyter Notebook to explore some data, and you've got like, a plot that you've made, but you need to filter the data in the plot 10 different ways. And there's, you know, a number of ways that you can do that. For example, you could copy and paste the code for the plot and then just change like the filter for each cell. Yeah. You could modify the same cell and execute it, view the results and then modify it again and kind of do that 10 times. Or you could parameterize the notebook using uh, something like there's a tool called paper mill that allows you to do these parameterized notebooks and which is which is a cool little project if you, if you do that kind of stuff it uh, you should definitely check that out so that that would allow you to like execute the entire notebook with like 10 different sets of parameters or you might do some combination of all these these things those all solve the problem but you might want something quicker like a, a more interactive for that and iPy widgets is a way that you can add these little widgets like drop down menus, forms, sliders, and, and different things like that that would allow you to achieve those in a more interactive way. And I think it's important to you know say that this is not really meant to replace something like a dashboard. Like if you were, you know what I mean? Like I, right. I don't think it's really for that use case. It's more 
for like, I've got this notebook where, and we're still like analyzing data, but I want you know, to be able to select different filters or different, different things like that. And just be able to quickly and interactively change the, the data that I'm, that I'm looking at. They sit between the cells. I think so. Yeah. There's a couple of screenshots. Yeah. It's, it's like you would have kind of your own cell basically describing the widget that you, you want to create. And then it would display below that cell once you execute the, that code. Nice. He, he talks about a couple of different widgets, like the like little drop-down selector. He gives an example where like maybe you're looking at data from different areas of like different regions in a, in a state or something, and you want to filter it by like zip code, which we have here in the, in the US. Or maybe you want to sort things by like a column name. So, or, so you could have a, a drop-down that would allow you to sort data in different ways. You can also do checkboxes, multi-select list boxes where you'd be able to like select different things, like maybe different uh, column names or something. And you can add buttons as well, which means that you can handle events like the button click and, and things like that. So the little example that he gives is like a little form that you can use to sort of select different things you want from the notebook and then press like a run button and it'll execute everything using what you've selected in the form. So cool little example. And I think there's a lot more that you can do with it. So this is very like very much just an introduction to IPy widgets and would be a good sort of jumping off point then to go and explore the docs and and really get, you know, neck deep into all that and, and how you can how you can use it. So pretty cool little little tutorial. Yeah, it sounds nice. It, it... Like you said, it, it seems like kind of in between what would be a full-on dashboard that you might hand to, you know, somebody who's just reviewing the data. Right. Whereas if you want to, like, collaborate with somebody and then let them have a handful of controls as you're experimenting. I mean, that's, you know, kind of what all the Jupyter Notebooks in general feel like such a area for er- experimentation. So it kind of gives you, like, handles on a lot of those things, which is really nice. Yeah. That's what you got. So... I talked to John Fincher way back in episode two, and people who listened to that might remember him describing his sort of foray into playing around with a, another framework, not Pygame, but Arcade, and that he was interested in creating a platform game. And after a really long process of getting the article done and getting it reviewed and so forth, the article came out, and uh, it's really cool. It's titled Build a Platform Game in Python with Arcade. I was expecting it to be kind of a little, you know, fairly short, but it's actually, I think, a bit longer than the the previous one that was about Pygame because it really dives into a whole additional set of things that you need to do to create a platformer. And if you're not familiar with a platform game, you can think of like Mario or go back in time, like Load Runner, or there's some other ones that are kind of interesting you know, the characters moving around on the screen and, you know, maybe picking up coins. Like, I guess Sonic would be another version of that, possibly. This article uses Arcade. It's not so much a deep dive on explaining the technologies of Arcade. It's mainly really implementing them. It's much more of one one of those that we've described as a step-by-step mm-hmm. article. There is another article that's like that, and I can give you a link for that, too, in, in the show notes to give you an idea if you want to learn, like, kind of the differences between Pygame and Arcade and get familiar with some of the basic technology of it. But you're really building th- this thing for, from scratch. He goes very deep into a topic that we've discussed a few times now of finding assets. And he uses uh, a website called Kenny NL. And that site, he's gotten 
the tiles that create the little areas that build up the map of the platform that you're working with and that can have different oh gosh everything from like he's providing the this sort of free tile set that has snow or dirt or grass or all these different kind of environments so you could create lots of interesting different levels mm-hmm. which is neat and then characters and enemies and things that you're going to pick up in this case it's coins and then you know he kind of goes through the idea of like okay well what's the structure of the game going to be you know sort of kind of coming up with a backstory of like how this works and so forth and then after diving into the assets one interesting thing that arcade provides which is really cool is it has a a physics engine choice and it provides like three different choices there there's one that is actually specifically for platform games it's built into arcade which is really nice so it kind of has that sort of built-in structural gravity and things like that and uh, a lot of those concepts are handled for you which is really nice then it dives into actually building levels which was really fun i enjoyed that idea of like okay this isn't that difficult there's a third-party tool that is sort of freeware, sort of donationware kind of thing. It's called Tiled. And uh, it's actually a really nice design tool that allows you to import all the assets and then create this map of like what the level's going to be. And you can create different layers. So you can have like the actual, what would be quote unquote, like the ground <laughs> versus like things that would be in the background versus things you interact with, like objects and so forth. It goes into all of that, walks you through that whole process of uh, working with those things, the sprites, the textures. And then as you're building and using that stuff and importing these maps, it's really fun to see, you know, a lot of tutorials, like a lot of that stuff already kind of pre-built for you. In this case, you're actually creating this level from scratch, which kind of gives you this kind of unique, a little bit of ownership over it, which is fun. And And then you can kind of start to be creative, like how else would I modify this? And and then it gets really into the nitty gritty of like, okay, moving the sprite, collisions, something that's unique to a platform game is this idea that you have this map. Sure, it could be, I don't know, 100 across and maybe 50 squares high or tiles high, but your screen won't show all of that. So there's this idea of a thing called a viewport, which actually moves around as your character moves to the edge of the screen. The window moves with you and updates to that and in this case you're not only moving left to right but you're moving up and down and so there's a lot of interesting code that needs to be written to have the viewport follow you around and and kind of work in there and dealing with that then it gets into you know scoring showing that on screen some more advanced things like game controllers creating intro and title screens and then at the very end of it after doing kind of some basic stuff which it's really a good idea to kind of make sure all that works and make sure that your character understands the environment and the player does too. It gets into then, okay, well, maybe the platforms can move, ladders, what kind of enemies there are and how the character can interact with them. And then, and a whole bunch of additional directions that you may want to take this further with, you know, like numbers of lives, um, some other additional kind of loops, maybe a way to select levels, all, all these kinds of things that you could kind of see of how you could enhance this and make it your own so it's a really great job that john did on this i'm really impressed with it i know it took a a long time to come out but i i really am impressed with the (laughs) the end results and it made me excited about okay i I feel like i could build this type of game you know outside of the other couple things that we've covered recently about gaming Uh, i think this is a, a fun example and showed to me really the potential of arcade engine so yeah check it out yeah yeah it's really cool this it makes me want to come back and uh, 
and go through this tutorial myself. <laughs> it was fun. I mean, I yeah. it was really interesting how the skeleton code turned into a game pretty quickly um, as you went. And of course, you get all the code that you can, you can kind of follow along, and he's kind of saved it in stages so you could kind of uh, follow along in case you get stuck anywhere. Yeah. Which is great. But I ended up, you know, typing almost all of it in <laughs> as I went and didn't really have any big issues with it, which was cool. Awesome. Yeah. I love the little uh, animations and stuff he's got in here to, yeah. <laughs> you know, so you can see like what what's actually going on. It looks awesome. Yeah. Turned out cool. DigitalOcean's app platform is a new platform-as-a-service solution to build modern cloud-native apps. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point to your GitHub repository and let App Platform do all the heavy lifting related to infrastructure. Get started on DigitalOcean's App Platform for free at do.co slash realpython. That's do.co slash realpython. What do you got up next? Next one I've got comes from Itamar Turner Trowing, which I think it was another podcast. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we've had him uh, on the show. Yeah. Yeah. And got a blog called uh, Python Speed and does a lot of stuff around working with like large data sets, things like Docker, and as well as performance, code performance. And this article is called The Hidden Performance Overhead of Python C Extensions. So that's definitely on kind of the performance side of things. And uh, he starts out by saying, you know, Python is slow, especially compared to compiled languages like Rust, C, or C++. And when your application is slow, you could, one, one option is to rewrite some of your code in a compiled extension that you can then import and use in a, a Python program. So for example, this is the way like NumPy works. They have C extensions that, and then you import those into, into Python and use that. But sometimes those compiled extensions can actually be slower than their equivalent Python code. And uh, that happens for a couple of reasons. One is function call overhead. So the time it takes to actually just call a function, like not, not anything that the function does itself, but just calling that function has some overhead associated with it. And another thing, when you work with these compiled extensions, there's a serialization and deserialization layer that adds some overhead there too. So if you need to pass arguments to functions that you're calling from the extension, mm. then you know the way that an object works in Python is not the same way that it works in, in something like C++ or Rust and, and especially C, which isn't even an object-oriented language. So it has to, you know, there's like a translation layer that has to be translated into something that the extension can understand. And then when the extension is done and returning a value back to the Python program, then that also has to be translated back to something that Python can understand. So that can add overhead to it as well. So he talks about these different issues and some ways that you can get around it. One thing that I thought it was, it was kind of funny to me I don't know if it would be funny to anyone else, but it was funny to me when when <laughs> I got to it in the article because it goes through like the example he's using is summing over a list of numbers. And he talks about, you know, different issues with that and he kind of build up this, this solution. And then he gets to the end and says, well, really the best solution is to just change your algorithm. <laughs> and uh, it kind of made me laugh because it was sort of like, 
I mean, I guess you could do that without the extension at all. And even mentions that in some cases, just doing that, you then you don't you don't need the extension. Like you can you can get your Python code fast enough. Of course, you need to know, you know, an algorithm to be able to do that. But yeah, that is definitely it. Can be the best solution. It's still a really like just interesting article. I didn't realize that there was so much overhead. For example, just calling a function from like something like Cython, and it turns out it's not as slow as Python, like if you're from Python calling a Python function, if you call a function from Python that's in Cython, it, it is faster, but it's not nearly as fast as like a native function call in C or C++. It's something like 30 nanoseconds for like just a, like he has this function called do nothing, which literally does nothing. The only line of code in it is pass. It takes, uh, yeah, like around 30 nanoseconds to call that function. Whereas in a, in a compiled language, you would expect something like only three nanoseconds and even faster if, if that uh, function gets inlined when it's compiled. So it's a, it's an interesting article. It's something to think about. If, if you need to write a compiled extension, then uh, these are things to be aware of for sure. And just, I guess, one last takeaway from it. The thing that I, that I, to me, provided the most value when I was reading this was that, you know, this, this serialization and deserialization layer can really cause problems if you if you if you aren't careful with that and and you have to kind of think through and and the sol- the solution to there was to try to do as much of your data management inside the extension as possible so to give you an example like num- numpy if you need to create an array of consecutive numbers you can use like this a range function yeah. from mm-hmm. numpy sure and what that means is when you pass you you know you use a range and you pass it some number and it returns a numpy array of like you know zero up to i guess one less than that that number and the only thing that has to be serialized and deserialized there is the the number that you're passing to that extension another way to do something similar would be to like create a list of you know using the range function in Python to create the same thing, and then from there, create a NumPy array. That's going to be way slower and actually use a lot of memory, a lot more memory than it would just uh, just passing the number to the extension. So things like that, like just kind of being aware that there's this hidden cost that you might not even be aware of. And so that was, to me, that was kind of the biggest value that I got out of it. I, I like his articles in, in the sense that he tries to show you lots of the angles that you might not be thinking about yeah. um, in these situations, which I think is really useful. And even if he mocks up a very simplistic thing, like you said, just sort of summing or something like that, you can, you can definitely see where to take it off and go next with it. You know, if, if you want to explore it and then I, I like how he usually wants to wrap up with like, well, okay, but you know, keep these other things in mind too, which is very useful there's always like the pluses and minuses of, of all these different avenues. And yeah, most often I think what happens is have you really thought about the problem, <laughs> you know, and, and what you're, what you're trying to do as opposed to just diving in and like always just solving it. Right. Which I mean, to, to be fair, you know, in a lot of instances, there's this mantra and I can't remember who said it or, or where it's, where it's from, but it goes something like make it work. Yeah. Then make it right. 
then make it fast. And that's sort of like the or of, or, uh, order of priorities when you're programming. Like if you, if you can just get it to work well, then you've solved the problem, right? Like right. now it may not be the best solution or it may not even be fast enough. You know, it, maybe it is, maybe it is fast enough. And in which case, if it's not the best solution, maybe that doesn't really matter necessarily. But yeah, like the first thing is like, just get it to work. And then once you're there, then you can see like, now what am I running into? Like, oh, it's it's super slow. Okay, well, then you need to address the performance issues in that case, yeah. if it if it's, you know, causing hangups in your, uh, in your execution. But but yeah, I think that's a good mantra to, to live by. And th- this article, I think, is targeted to people where, you know, the you can use native Python to solve a lot of these problems, but Python speed, in some cases, can be detrimental. Like it can be a problem. In that case, then you know, if you need to to improve the performance, then here's some things to think about. Yeah, going back to what you were just saying, there's the the meme with Captain Jack Sparrow where they've modified it, and the guy's saying to him like, "This is the worst code that I've ever seen." You know worst code i've ever seen running you know whatever it is well, you do agree it it, it does run <laughs> you know so <laughs> it's like yeah you know i mean that's the point of it in a lot of cases you know then we can fix it from there right yeah my next one's real short but kind of an interesting thing that when i when i saw it i was like oh this looks really kind of intriguing and i, I had to think okay well what are the different places we might use it um it's an article titled for else and it's sort of <laughs> the secondary uh, title uh, underneath it is a, a weird but useful feature in Python. It's by Yang Zhao, and he has a Medium blog called Tech to Freedom. And so it's one of those, again, you got to watch out for the number of article reads and so forth because it's a Medium thing. But you may not have been aware of this idea that if you're inside of a for loop, that if the for loop is successful and has gone through all of the you know iterable items in there and it ha- can have an else block mm-hmm. you know kind of like an if else statement if there is no break in the loop so you know if there could be situations where you break out of a for loop uh, for some situation you set up some kind of condition inside there some kind of if statement or something like that at that outer level you can have this for and then your statement and then else colon and then have it execute something. I, I think of it like uh, exiting out of a with statement or something like that in a similar way that these ideas of like blocks of code, right? Yeah. And you might think, okay, well, why would you want to do that? And the the author had three different kind of ideas. The first one that I thought I could think of first was this idea that <laughs> when you think of like arrays or uh, other situations, you may nest your loops. And if you're nesting a loop inside of another loop, um, you may want to be able to break out of that. Yes. In that particular case, there may be something that y- you want two sort of situations in that. Like if it broke out of this, you want you know this to happen. Whereas in another situation, you may want it to have completed something else and the else block would allow that to happen. Right. Which is kind of cool. It's another way of handling exceptions was another example they had where it's only going to... <laughs> execute if there's no break in the loop and so you know you can have something going through there and it can handle this particular exception if it comes up and then if the exception doesn't happen then you know you have your else block that kind of gets out of it so it's just an interesting kind of thing that you can have um very often people build like flag variables 
that to indicate like the state of something, you know, kind of successfully accomplishing or getting through something. And the else statement could basically help you with that kind of automatically. It's like, yes, it, you know, it, it found this thing or it didn't find this thing. And, you know, you can have it kind of successfully report that out of it without having to create an additional statement or some kind of flag variable that you're yeah. dealing with. So, yeah, that's a nice use case, I think, for that. It's, you know, this for else thing is one of those things that I think a lot of people don't use it that often. Um, no, I don't. I don't know about it. So, and yeah, I think there's also a lot of people that, that don't know about it. It's a it's a cool little little feature. I mean, I, I like it, and I I definitely see where in some cases it it really does provide a nice solution to things. The problem with it, I think, is that the the else it's hard to re- I think it's hard to remember like what else does right like is it if it breaks is it if it doesn't break like and and which should it be like yeah the 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 phrasing of it is not you know. It, it almost should be like also, <laughs> right? <laughs> for also or something like that, as opposed to for else, because the for uh, leading into it, the else is happening if again nothing breaks out of the loop. Like you've gone through the whole set of situations the for was handling in that case, you know? Yeah, so that's very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think people might see it in code and kind of wonder where it came from. Like they might think it indention wise oh should this would go with the, this if statement or something and you know if they're like refactoring code and we're confused by it but yeah it's a as, as stated a weird but useful feature yeah um to be aware of and and i can think of you know now with those couple of examples some places where it might come in kind of handy next one i think is kind of interesting involves a pretty intense effort on your part um so <laughs> what do you got there yeah i wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the Python news article that is maybe some listeners have seen on uh, Real Python. This is now the, the second one we've we've released. We did one for March. And and then on May 3rd, we released this new one that what's new from April 2021 in, in Python. It's a new thing we're doing, kind of a, a regular column, I guess you could call it, where I'll be uh, recapping some of kind of the biggest or what I what I think are some of the most important news items from the last month. Just wanted to feature it and you know maybe uh, try to gather some feedback from from listeners if they if they want to let us know what they think about that. You could leave a comment on the article or get in touch with us some other way. But uh, but there were some really kind of big things that happened in April. Yeah, probably the biggest one, at least that's going to have the longest lasting impact on Python is that PSF got their first, uh, what they call visionary sponsors for, for the PSF. And this is like the highest tiered sponsorship level. So in order to be a visionary sponsor, you have to donate at least $150,000 to get there, which is a very sizable sum of money. Yeah. What's really awesome about that is that with that money, it's allowed the PSF to hire some full-time employees. Nice. There's now two two jobs that are open uh, that look really like they're going to be really high impact jobs for Python. One is called a C Python developer in residence, and this is pretty huge. So this is someone that will be working full time to address backlog, and this is a quote from their the, the announcement the PSF had. They'll address backlog, perform analytical research to understand the project's volunteer hours and funding, 
investigate project priorities in their tasks going forward and begin working on those priorities. So, I mean, basically someone who's being hired full-time to work and support CPython development. And uh, that is huge. It's funded for one year. And I'm not sure exactly when this episode will come out, but the the resume submissions are are being accepted until May 16th. However, right now they're only accepting someone who is an existing core developer, uh, which I think makes sense. But yeah, that's that's big news. And it was modeled after this Django Fellowship program, which I didn't even know was a was a thing. The Django Software Foundation has been hiring uh, paid contractors to work on like triage Django tickets, release backlogging, addressing severe bugs so that they don't get, you know, postponed indefinitely and things like that. It's an initiative that they started over at the, the for the uh, Django Software Foundation and, uh, and now the PSF. They saw the success of that program and now they've started something similar with this uh, visionary sponsorship. So uh, the CPython developer in residence was, is supported by funds from Google, which was the very first visionary sponsor that the, that the PSF got. Uh, they also have a Python packaging project manager position. Yeah, I saw that announcement. Yeah, which is supported by uh, Bloomberg Engineering. That was the second visionary sponsor. So this is someone that's going to oversee improvements and added functionality that will benefit all Python users while leading the, the development of PyPI into a sustainable service. That was a quote from the the PSF's announcement there. So, and uh, we can we can throw a link into the uh, show notes. Although these links are also in the article where Bloomberg actually has a, a blog post that they uh, that they published that uh, talks about why they're supporting the Python community and this idea of what they call shifting left, which I'll let the article explain what that means. But uh, but it really gets you know gets into like why they're supporting Python and why in particular they wanted to support the packaging ecosystem. And then since we released this news article, Microsoft has come on board now as the third visionary sponsor. So they're not mentioned in, in the article because it was something that happened after this had you know gotten into the publishing pipeline there but now there are three visionary sponsors which is pretty amazing and uh i think it's just going to be you know i just think it's going to have a really big impact on python and a lasting impact so that was uh something that was really cool my article also talks about uh some new and improved error messages that python 3.10 is going to have which is a really cool initiative and I think is going to really improve user experience for Python. So for example, if you forget a colon at the end of like a function definition, so you do def, you know, function name, and then you, you know, type your arguments and everything. And then you forget the colon right now, if you, if you do that and you, you press enter, like if you're in the, say in the REPL, you do that, you press enter, then it says syntax error, invalid syntax. <laughs> which is a really funny error message to me. It's like just yeah. rewording the name of the error a little bit. It's uh, not helpful at all. Now, if you do that, uh, well, not now, not yet. If uh, On 3.10, if you're using the beta version, then I guess it's happening for you now. But uh, when 3.10 gets released, it'll now say uh, syntax error expected colon, and we'll have a little caret like where that was actually expected. They've also improved, for example, if, if you forget to use the comparison operator in an if statement, so if you have two variables and you want to check that they have the same value, uh, you would use the equals equals operator, but it's a really common mistake for beginners. And also just like if you don't happen, like if you're just typing quickly, it's easy to make this mistake too, where, you know, you do A equals B instead of equals equals. 
And again, you know, currently it just says syntax error, invalid syntax. And if you're new to Python syntax, I mean, you might be going like just totally confused by that. Like, what? what's wrong here? Like, I don't understand. And now the error says syntax error, invalid syntax. Maybe you meant equals equals or colon equals in reference to the Walbers operator instead of equals. So like it actually, you know, helps you out and gives you suggestions for like what you meant there, which is really cool. There's some other awesome stuff. Like if you uh, mistype attribute name on like a module or on a class or something like that, it will actually offer suggestions. Like if there's an existing name that that's similar to like the mistyped name you ad- you added or you, you tried to uh, access, then it will like suggest like maybe you meant this. So for example, the example they give is if you import the collections module and try to access named tuple and, and just botch it and type named toplo, then the error will come back and say, collections has no attribute named toplo. Did you mean named tuple? So that's that's really cool. So I, I think those are really awesome additions to the language. And then the last thing that I talk about in the article, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail into it here because it's a very <laughs> big topic, but there was, if, if you follow anything on like Hacker News or, or anything like that, you might have seen, I don't want to say controversy, but just, you know, I guess I already said it. A lot of uh, discussion going around something called PEP 563, which has to do with uh, type annotations. To make a, a long story really short, there was a change that was scheduled to happen in the way that, that Python evaluates t- uh, type hints. That originally, they, they were going to make this change in Python 4. Like, you know, who knows when Python 4 is going to come out. And so it was basically like, we want to make this change, but we're not going to make it the default behavior until Python 4. So it's like, because it's kind of a potentially a breaking change. And well, after the language summit in 2020 at PyCon, the steering council decided, you know what, let's go ahead and do this for Python 3.10. That meant maintainers now like really had to start thinking about how to support this. Uh, this change. And it affects, it primarily affects tools that do real-time type checking. In particular, a package called Pydantic and Fast API, uh, which is a very becoming more and more popular web framework for asynchronous uh, web stuff. They were running into a whole bunch of issues with uh, implementing this. And kind of at the last minute, they started uh, reaching out and leaving comments on, I don't know if they raised bugs or, or things like that, but I know they, they got involved in like the Python dev mailing list and they started saying, hey, you know, this is really, like we're not gonna be able to support this and it could be detrimental to the future of our projects. And we think that, you know, that you shouldn't, you shouldn't do this. There was another PEP that someone else had introduced that they thought would be a better solution. And they said, we think you should, you know, support this PEP instead. It was very close to the time that the beta release of 3.10 was going to come out. And so, and also, which meant that there was going to be a, a feature freeze. So kind of all at the last minute, like this was happening, there was a lot of discussion. There was a lot of energy being put behind all this stuff. And the steering council reviewed everything and decided that they were actually going to roll back that change that that made this uh, this new way to evaluate type hints or 
if you read the article, it's not it's not really a new way to evaluate. It's that they're not going to evaluate type hints. Basically, they decided to roll that back and say, okay, we're not we're not going to do this in three point ten. We're postponing it until three point eleven and possibly later. They left that option open as well, so that they can work with the community to figure out what a better solution for all this uh, was. So it just felt like you know a big win for the Python community in a lot of ways. It, it felt like kind of proof that the, the the core developers and the steering council really listened to the the input and the feedback that they get from the community. And there was some there was a really nice lesson. At, at the end that uh, I do want to share on the on the podcast here because I just think that it it's something that anyone who not just maintains like an open source project that's in the Python ecosystem but anyone who uses Python it's it's a nice lesson to take away here one of one of the I don't want to say criticism but one of the things that some of the core developers were saying to the owner of the Pydantic repository was you know it looks like you've been having these issues like since all the way back in 2018. And it really would have been helpful if you had reached out to us earlier, as opposed to like, you know, just a few days before we're going to release the the beta. And, you know, they said, but, you know, even though we're so close, like we are going to take this very seriously and everything. But, uh, but you know, they did mention like, look, you know, you need to raise these issues early so that we can work with you to, to help you implement it or, you know, see if there's a, an issue. And the owner of, of the repository kind of on this long thread, this long pedantic issue thread on the pedantic repository. At the end of it, he says, you know, this has been a really positive experience for me and I feel much more positive about talking to the Python dev community. In the future, I will engage with the release process and treat it like something I'm a very small part of rather than something that happens to me. And I thought that was a really good takeaway, right? That like, yeah, you know, wow. even though I'm not a Python core developer, like I'm still like as a user and as a maintainer of a of a third of a, a open source package I'm still a part of that release process like I may not be right a, a main part but like it's it's not it's something that I can be a part of and not just like let it happen to me and so I thought that was a really cool takeaway yeah it's the whole idea like there's humans on both sides of this thing you know it's not like right. it's not like this monolithic structure that that doesn't accept input at all you know that's forcing everything on you um you know these are things that can be brought up and hopefully both sides are seeing you know ways to kind of continue to inc- you know increase that engagement and I, I, that's a really great outcome yeah it was it was a good outcome nice and uh yeah even guido jumped in when they they had the uh steering council announced that they were going to be rolling this back and he told them that they have the wisdom of solomon and that uh, <laughs> rolling back the code that made pep 563 default behavior is the only sensible solution for this. So it even got Guido's stamp of, of approval. But yeah, it was a, just a good outcome and just kind of a, a good story. I did have to do a lot of research to kind of even understand like what this change was because it's something that doesn't affect me at all in my my day-to-day life. Right. And uh, like trying to figure out like, you know, what is this change actually doing and why is it causing these issues? Like, you know, what's going on here? But uh, yeah, if, if anyone out there listening, if you're interested in the full story, I've got uh, write up of that in the in the Python news article, and you know, please like let us know what you think of these. It's uh, it's it's fun for me to write. Hopefully, it's fun and useful for people to to read. So, well, it's nice to see it all kind of gathered together. You know, because trying to follow something along 
you know, Twitter threads or yeah. forum posts and, you know, like combining all those things. I can definitely see exactly. <laughs> the lengths yeah. of work that you went to do that and linking to all of it. So that's great. This week, the spotlight is a bit different. I want to let you know that C Python Internals is now available as a paperback book. The book was written by former guest Anthony Shaw, who is not only a real Python team member, but also a CPython contributor. Along the way of writing and iterating the book, Anthony had help from the RealPython editorial team. If you haven't heard of CPython internals before, it's a guided tour to the internals of the Python 3 interpreter. You'll pick up the concepts, ideas, and technicalities of CPython in an approachable and hands-on fashion. By the end of the book, you'll be able to not only read and navigate the CPython 3.9 interpreter source code, but also make changes to the Python syntax and compile your own version of CPython from scratch. You'll master CPython's memory management capabilities, debug C, and Python code like a true professional, and you could participate in the development of CPython. There is a stage in your progression as a Python developer where you can benefit greatly from understanding how CPython works internally. Unlock the inner workings of the Python language with CPython internals. The physical paperback book is available on Amazon, or you can find out more and how to order your copy at cpythoninternals.com. That's the letter C, Python internals, all one word, dot com. So my next one is kind of going back to a conversation that I have with Mike Driscoll about his new book about the pillow library mm -hmm. and um, modifying images. And it was something that we, we kind of touched on this idea of like, okay, well, you know, how could you use pillow to do sort of modifications of things and change things? This is something I really dig and it's something I'm kind of passionate about because I'm into photography. And so it was like right up my alley. The title of it is film simulations from scratch using Python. And it's by Kevin Martin Jose, his personal blog. When you're working with analog photography, going back in time, <laughs> you would go <laughs> and you would buy different types of film and you might preferentially pick out a particular brand or a particular stock of film. Not only, uh, you know, things that were designed for indoor use or outdoor use, you know, sort of the speed of the film, but also uh, brands of film that might be better for slides or for working with prints. But then you can get into like, well, how do you want the color representation to be done? And, and so you get into this kind of interesting land of like how analog photography sort of would see color and represent it and, and, you know, sort of the vividness of it, the kind of things that it would pull out and kind of accentuate in certain ways. And having lived in, in Hawaii, there's definitely a, a very unique color palette to everything in Hawaii. It's very, very green and blue and, and so forth. And then having lived in like Arizona and the reds and the browns and, and so forth. And so you might pick up to particular type of film. And so this article dives into this area of digital photography where you may have seen on some cameras. I mean, I, I'm guessing most people have played around with something like Instagram and, and filters inside of it. Yeah. But even like, you know, you could buy a Kodak camera or a, um, those were the first ones that I remember there first delving into digital photography, but Fuji makes digital cameras and Nikon and Canon and so forth. And some of the smaller ones, the more point and shoot ones will have settings in them where you can have it 
automatically sort of simulate what it, you know, what type of film do you want this to look like? And, and the way that's working is it's using something called a color lookup table or CLUT. So this article is sort of approaching like, okay, well, can we use color lookup tables with something like pillow and combine them with images here? And it really dives deep into that idea. And then one of the nicest things about it is it has a Jupyter notebook for you to kind of follow along and kind of play with. One of the interesting problems with it is how these sort of lookup tables, like if you weren't going to try to create one from scratch, like how they're sort of saved because the colors for um, photography, as far as digital photography generally is the RGB sort of spectrum, those sort of three elements. You can kind of think of it almost like a, a cube, you know, this sort of matrix of, of information there. But the problem is that's not an easy format to share. And it doesn't really work with a lot of other types of formats. So there's a sort of standardized format that's come along called a HALD, H-A-L-D, uh, C-L-U-T or CLUT. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what that will do is convert it into a 2D space so that it can kind of be saved like kind of like a flat image in that sense. And they look really strange because it's like literally just the spannings of these colors and how you may want the, the reds to shift or the greens to shift or the blues to shift I- inside of it. And so there'll be different ones that represent, this is how this Fuji film from the seventies looked or, you know, so forth and so on. And, and they can be created and programmed. And so what the article's doing is first of all, showing how to use a lookup table to modify colors in an image. So it starts out very simply with like, just like, okay, well, let's just take the greens and, and modify them or the blues or whatever you, and then, okay, well, how could you have it then do the mapping based upon these lookup tables? And so it walks through that. I want to go too deep into it because it gets really <laughs> into some deep math of like, just like pulling that information out and sort of doing this dimensional shift of like <laughs> 2d to 3d inside of it, which is kind of cool. But I was just impressed with the the article. Um, the results were really kind of neat and he shares uh, links to additional uh, hauled clut images on raw therapy, which is like a, a place to kind of create those and shared. And then if you're interested in the project and you're like, Oh, I'd like to take this further. There's a kind of a challenge that he leaves at the end of it where one of my favorite kind of filters that you can kind of apply is to create sort of black and white images. And there was, you know, when I was in photography and, you know, doing printing and, and doing analog photography, there were very specific types of film that you would use to, to create these certain looks and feels. And so there's similarly these lookup tables that, that simulate that. And so that is kind of a neat idea of a project like, okay, well, how can we modify this and push it into the black and white realms? And so it's a, it's a fun article uh, dealing with pillow and, you know, using Python to, to modify your photography and lots of, interesting little bit of math and, and numpy arrays to kind of uh, get into it. Yeah. Diving into all those elements that, that are kind of fun to explore. And I really enjoyed that, that he shared the Jupyter notebook that kind of walk you through all of it and kind of play through. Yeah. I like too, that he's got these, uh, these cool widgets on there that allow you to kind of like compare and contrast like the slider. Yeah. A little slider <laughs> across the image. image. Yeah. You can kind of wipe it. Yeah. It's cool. So you can like, as you're reading, you don't really need to run everything. You can actually kind of like see as you're reading the effect that this has and compare it. And, uh, some of them, 
like without the slider, I don't think I would have even really noticed yeah. the difference because some of them are, are so subtle. But when you roll the slider of it, you, like you can kind of see certain details. You're like, oh, okay, yeah, that actually is uh, changing something. So yeah, really, really cool article. So that takes us into projects. Yeah. And what do you got for your project? So this one is, it's a Python project. I mean, it uses a lot of Python, but the end result is something that is not Python. It's called Heady. And the description that they give on the repository here is, Heady is a gradual programming language aimed at teaching programming and teaching Python. It teaches it using different levels. The first level just offers printing text and asking for input. This level is meant to introduce learners to the idea of a programming language and the environment. From there, Hetty builds up to include more complex syntax and additional concepts. And I thought this was a really interesting way to teach programming hmm. because, like, for example, my, my daughter is taking a, a programming class in middle school right now, and they kind of have moved, like, I think they started with Scratch, and they've kind of moved up to something else, which uh, I don't remember now. I'd never heard of it before. But it's like, as they're moving levels in that class, they're having to learn entirely new languages and, and environments and stuff. And it, I think it adds a lot of overhead to uh, to that. This is like a very different kind of approach. You still have these this like leveled approach, but it's like very gradually introducing different syntax and the environment stays exactly the same. Yeah, that's nice. You start with something that looks like almost pure English. There's there's no weird symbols or anything like that. It just is like almost pure English. And then it gradually starts introducing a few little symbols and things. It's it's really a, a cool way to teach someone uh, to program. The idea is that with, with each increase in level, you kind of get something that's starting to look more and more like Python. And at the end, like when you kind of reach the last level, then like the next step then would be to actually learn like true Python. And so it's really aimed, I think it, I mean, I guess you could use this for anyone. I think it would be useful for, for anyone learning. I think it, though it's it's definitely aimed more at like the, you know, late elementary or early middle school type audience, or they had those like kids like that in mind, but there's no reason you couldn't use this for adults as well that were like totally new to programming at all. I'd never done any programming and and want to learn Python. So really cool project. Their homepage is called Hedy, H-E-D-Y code.com. There's a video on there by the founder that talks about, you know, why they did what they did and their approach and everything. So if you're interested in that, if you do any teaching of programming, this might be something to, to check out. So mine is called Python Ray Tracer. Yeah. And uh, it's a GitHub repository. It's by uh, Rafael Fuente. And if you're not familiar with ray tracing, you've probably seen the images before of like a sphere or cubes or other kinds of like computer graphic images that were generated, I don't know, in the 90s and the 2000s and so forth. I remember seeing a lot of these kinds of things where the ray tracing really is following how light hits objects, how it's reflected, refracted, you know, diffused and so forth. And then how those rays, literally individual rays of light come into your eye or in this case a camera or whatever that's doing it and so it you know deals with refraction and textures and and so forth and this is something that has always been this sort of deal where okay well you can set it up and you can apply ray tracing uh set up these objects in this kind of environment and then you know let it output 
export, you know, this image at the end of it. And that's what this is doing using NumPy uh, arrays and, and Python. And it's kind of fun to play with. Like I, there's a, in this case, it's not a Jupyter notebook, but it's just a set of scripts that you can go in and kind of tweak the parameters and adjust inside there. But it, it's fun to see because this is really where computer graphics has wanted to go <laughs> yeah. ever since, you know, we got into this whole thing. And, you know, I spent all this time talking about video games over the last several episodes, and it's finally becoming possible with the latest generation, not only the consoles like PS5 and the Xbox Series X, but on the you know actual PCs, there's these cards that that are named RT for ray tracing uh, cards, and they're you know multiple, well, usually a thousand dollars or more uh, just for the card to do this kind of thing. But the types of uh, images that come off of this in these real-time animations, it's it's just stunning. It's like this level of of rendering that's just so different. It, it just looks so much more realistic. And mm-hmm. I know that this is something that's happening, you know, in the animation studios also, like you know, Pixar and so forth um, have been playing around in this realm. And you've probably seen that yourself in in different places, like it kind of coming up. And so it's neat to have a project that you can kind of just play around with 3d computer graphics and kind of learn a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of language that's being used and, and techniques that are being used to create this visual realism and generate this stuff. And so it, it's, it's a, a fun little project to kind of play with. And the code was pretty easy to kind of modify into your own. And it was just fun to play with and, and output some of these images uh, and kind of modify some of them and definitely check it out if you're interested in, kind of diving deeper into the imagery and and the math involved in ray tracing uh, with Python. Yeah, cool stuff. Well, I guess that covers it for this week. Yeah. Thanks again for bringing all these articles and projects absolutely to my attention and uh, sharing them with everybody. Yeah, thanks for having me back on the show. Talk to you soon. All right, see ya. And don't forget, you can get started on DigitalOcean's app platform for free at do.co slash realpython. That's do.co slash realpython. I want to thank David Amos for joining me again this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.